God. I'm going to go ahead and open with prayer, so you guys please agree with me. Father, we lift up this time tonight. We come to you in Jesus' name and through his blood. And Lord, we thank you for the awesome power of your word. Lord, we love worship, and we love prayer, and we love the presence of the Lord. We love you, Holy Spirit. We thank you for being here. But Lord, we also love the word of God, and we need the word. And so, Lord, I pray tonight that everybody that's going to be hearing this, whether it's live here or if it's going to be a recording, Lord, I ask you that there would be such an anointing on this word right now, that everybody that's listening to this, the Holy Spirit will help us to give you our full attention, our, our best ear, our focus, that the Holy Spirit right now would just invade where we are and begin to fill people's hearts and minds and lives and help us, Lord, to have just good, fertile soil of hearts and minds. And we're locked into what you're saying. We're not distracted by all these other things, but the Holy Spirit helps us to get focused. Lord, we ask you that you would anoint our eyes and ears and give us eyes and ears of the Spirit. And Lord, that you would come upon me tonight and speak through me under an anointing that this word will go out and it will be as living seeds of truth going into that good soil, watered by the Holy Spirit and produce They'll, they'll take root and grow and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains till Jesus comes. We think about the parable of the seed and the sower. Let this fall on good soil. And Lord, I pray that this will go out and there'll be a washing of the water of the word of God that purifies. There'll be a bright shining light of your truth and revelation that dispels all the darkness, all the lies, all the deception of the enemy and brings truth and revelation. Let your word go out, Lord, like a hammer. It's going to break down religious strongholds and, and it's going to break the power of the enemy that maybe has had strongholds in people's minds. Let it go out as a sword that's going to penetrate and get where it needs to go. Let this word go out, Lord. And we stand on the promise that the Bible says it will not return void but go forth and accomplish that which you sent it for it to do. So we ask you that your precious Holy Spirit, it's like the winds of your spirit will blow this seed out among the nations. It will get everywhere it's supposed to be. It will land precisely where it needs to. And you know, because of the internet, it can go all over the world. And Lord, I pray that your mighty angels will watch over your word. And we speak right now, Jesus said, the birds of the air try to steal the seed. So Lord, we take authority and we bind anything of the enemy that would try to hinder this word in any way from accomplishing anything God desires. We bind you now and we command to back off and go right now in the name of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for your angels just clearing out any hindrance. And this will go forth and it will accomplish that what is supposed to. Lord, we thank you and we bless you. We believe we receive it. We expect it right now. Let everything be said, Lord, that needs to be said. Amen. All right. Thank you guys for agreeing with me. Well, we're going to go ahead and dive into this tonight. Uh, this is part 13 as we've been going through the Doctrines of Demons series. How many of you guys have enjoyed this and got something out of him? I've had a lot of positive feedback. You know, the thing is, we need to be preaching in a way that's going to help sift between what's of God and what's not. But we also need to be very humble and understand that there's a lot of very sincere people out there that, that are just trying to live for the Lord and do the right thing. You understand what I'm saying? Even though they may have some, make some mistakes or something, we need to be very careful to be humble and loving toward everyone. All right. As we go through this, I want to deal tonight with godly convictions. 
And where I'm going to talk this talk about this tonight the most has to do with the glory of the Lord, okay? Because I feel like God is increasing His glory in River of Life. And so, when you're called by God, if y'all could look this way and hear me, when you're called by God to go into the glory of the Lord, to have the glory in your life, to have the glory in your home, to be an individual that's going to be in the glory, that's going to carry the glory, uh, part of a church that has got the glory in it, you're not going to be able to do things that maybe other people think they have the freedom to do. And hopefully I'll be able to do a good job tonight of explaining that, but your convictions would just simply will be different, and they have to be. Because there's things that will not remain in the glory. And so, my heart's desire has been for many years after God touched me in revival, was to have his presence, his glory in my life. And, you know, there's things that can cause that glory to stay away from you. And if the glory comes and you mix in things that shouldn't be there in your life and you don't repent, that glory can begin to turn against you and bring judgment. So I'll deal with that as we go. But we love the glory, and we need God's glory in our lives. All right, so I'm going to read from Jeremiah chapter 35. This might be a bit of an obscure scripture to some people that's never read this, but it deals with the Rechabites, and these are an interesting group here. Um, let me just read it, and then we'll go through it together. Jeremiah 35, starting with verse 1, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. Now, here's the interesting thing. Keep in mind <coughs> the time that this is written. Jeremiah lived in one of the worst times of Israel's history. When Jeremiah was alive and prophesying, he was the son of a priest, so he had that, that priestly lineage, but he was a, a strong prophet. And he was living in a time prophesying when God's people were totally backslid. He very well was probably, as far as we know, the only true prophet. But there were tons of false prophets, tons of false prophets everywhere. But he was probably the only true prophet, at least the only true one that we do know of. But during his day, all of Israel had backslidden horribly. You should read the book of Jeremiah. And not only was it the average people, but the leadership. Obviously the kings, but even the priesthood. There, there were people that were so far from God, and Jeremiah was so grieved. So I want to set kind of some um, background, if you will, to this scripture, because this is the day and the time that this is written. The people of God backslidden, far from God. They're worshiping other gods. They set up idols throughout the land. People are burning incense on their housetops to demon gods. They're, they're just, it's just they're far from God. All right. Jeremiah 35, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the days of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, saying, Go to the house of the Rechabites and speak to them. Bring them into the house of the Lord. Now, where's the house of the Lord? It's talking about the temple. But they couldn't go into like the holy place or anything. There was adjoining rooms. But he's, the Lord said, bring them to the temple area. Now, Jeremiah had a priestly lineage, so he had no problem going into 
the area of the house of the Lord, into one of the chambers and give them wine to drink. Then I took Jaazaniah, the son of Jeremiah, some son of Habaziah, his brothers and all his sons, the whole house of the Rechabites, and I brought them into the house of the Lord, into the chamber of the sons of Hanan, the sons of Iglaliah, have you say, the, the man of God, which was near the chamber of the officials, which was above the chamber, and it just gives more descriptive terms. Verse 5, Then I set before these Rechabites, I set before them pitchers full of wine and cups, and I said to them, Drink wine. But they said, We will not drink wine. For Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father commanded us, saying, You shall not drink wine, you or your sons forever. You shall not build a house. You shall not sow seed, and you will not plant a vineyard of your own. But in tents you will dwell all your days, so that you may live many days in the land where you sojourn. And we have obeyed the voice of Jonadam, the son of Rahab, our father. In all that he commanded us to not drink wine all our days, we, our wives, our sons and daughters, nor to build ourselves houses to dwell in. We do not have our own vineyard or field or sea. We dwell in tents, and we've obeyed and have done according to all that Jonadab, our father, commanded us. But when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up against the land, so picture this military force coming, and they're hearing about this, they're seeing it, and they're getting scared. They said, when we saw that that was happening, we said to ourselves, come, let us go to Jerusalem before the army of the Chaldeans and the army of the Arameans. So now we're living in Jerusalem. And we can see in 1 Samuel 30, 29, a reference there to the Kenites. These, these were descendants of the Kenites. This was, they actually were not Jewish. So here's the interesting backstory about this. The Rechabites here that Jeremiah was told by the Lord to go to them, bring them to the temple area, set before them wine, and tell them, drink this wine. God knew what they were going to say. And they said, no, we can't do that. Our father and his father told us to not do that. And also to not live in houses that we built or plant vineyards, but we're to live as nomads in the land that we sojourn so that things will go well for us. And it's interesting because I'll break this down here in a moment, but there was a, a story. Let me give you a little background about the Kenites, these, this group of people here. Um, you remember back years ago whenever Moses had fled, he had killed the Egyptian, and he fled from Egypt, and he was living in the backside of a desert, and he met some daughters of Jethro, and they brought him to their father Jethro, and of course he ended up marrying one of those daughters, Zipporah. But Jethro was a priest of Midian. Now this is very important that you follow me in this for a moment, okay? Because none of this will make sense unless you hear it out. Jethro was a priest of Midian, and these are his people, the Kenites, his kin. And Jethro later on came to Moses when he brought, you remember the story, God appeared to Moses in a burning bush. He goes to Pharaoh with Aaron, his brother, and 
they he brings the children of Israel out. Now they're in a wilderness. And Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, a priest of Midian, a Kenite, came to Moses out in the desert, spent some time with him, and saw that Moses is trying to, to be a judge of all these people. And Jethro told him, it's not good what you're doing. It's going to worry you out. I'm sure as a father-in-law, I probably told him, you're going to die, man. You're going to die young. You keep trying to do what you're doing. So you need to find some men that are capable to help you judge all these people. And so Moses did. We know the story. There was around, I think there were 70 or 72. And the Spirit of God came upon them like on Moses on them. And they began to help judge. And then Jethro was going to go back to where he was from. And Moses urged him and said, Would you please remain with us? And you can share in the inheritance of what the Lord is doing. And there's no record in the Bible what Jethro said. But it does seem to indicate that from this, that probably Jethro sent back for the rest of his family and brought them and they dwelled among the Israelites. And they went into the land with Israel and set up an area that they lived. Now, I, th I speculate that's what happened. Here's one of the reasons why. Jethro was a priest in Midian. This was before the Aaronic priesthood. It's a priesthood in the order of Melchizedek. And we don't know a lot about this priesthood, but we do know from, this, from many stories, like in Job and other places, that, that there was a priesthood of sorts that understood that you sacrificed an animal and that blood was an atonement for you and your family. And there seemed to have been people that God ordained as priests back in that time we don't know a lot about it but when Moses came on the scene God shifted that now to where it was Aaron was the priest and there was an Aaronic priesthood and people had to come to that priesthood so the point of all that is this Jethro was a priest he understood the ways of God he understood what pleased God what didn't please God as a matter of fact he was a mentor to Moses for 40 years There's no telling what all Moses learned from him. And whenever he came, most likely him and his family joined with Israel. And these are most likely the descendants of him and his relatives that are living there now, known as the Rechabites. It was a Kenite tribe. And it was interesting to me that even though they had the opportunity to drink wine which would have been a very normal thing in that culture that their fathers had told them not to do that and I'm going to talk a little bit about that here in a moment but the two the three main things that stuck out to me was he said don't drink wine he said not to build your own house but live in tents and be nomadic you you can move quickly if you need to move you're just sojourning through the land and then Thirdly, he said, in this, and that's the same thing, don't plant your own vineyard because you're going to be moving, you see. And so they had to live that nomadic life, which, you know, came in pretty handy when times got dangerous. Like they saw the Babylonians come and they just packed up and moved to Jerusalem. All right. Let me start with this, and I think that you'll see where I'm going as I continue on the sermon. 
But number one was the abstinence from wine. This really struck me here. Have you noticed that Jesus taught in Luke 12.45? There's a parable. I'm only giving you some of it here. But there was a parable about a master that went on a long journey. And he left someone in charge. Obviously, this is a reference to Jesus leaving and he's leaving people in charge of his church. In Luke 12:45 it says, "But if that slave, the one that was left in charge, so we're talking about church leaders here. If that slave who was left in charge says in his heart, "My master is a long time in coming," and begins to beat the others, both men and women, to be abusive, and to eat and drink and get drunk, to be a glutton and a drunkard. The master of that slave, speaking of Jesus, will come on a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour he does not know, and will cut him into pieces, and assign him a place with the unbelievers. Where's the place with the unbelievers? Hell. I don't know what cut into pieces is, but I don't want to find out. We're living in a time <coughs> when people have to use a lot of wisdom and have a lot of discernment. I'm going to have to talk about a few things that I really don't want to talk about. But it is important. And um, let me give you a quick story to kind of set your teeth in where I'm going with this. I have a friend of mine. As a matter of fact, you're going to meet him pretty soon. He's a real powerful prayer warrior and he loves the Lord and we were spending some time together over lunch just talking about this that and the other but he was telling me that there was a time not that long ago that he was invited he was around a bunch of other leaders just various leaders and various positions in the body of Christ and they had had a get together at some house somewhere and they had had a barbecue and everybody was just eating and having a good time but he said after all of that people sat around and everybody just started drinking all this wine and, and the, the men started smoking cigars and, and he felt really uncomfortable and out of place and I would have too but he said that, that they began to urge him oh come on man you know trying to get him to do it and he was real nice about it he just said no I can't that's okay no thanks and who would have thought we'd be living in a day when religious leaders would be trying to tempt another man of God into compromising his godly convictions? And some of these are going to get up behind the pulpit in a few days and be preaching and praying with people. It reminds me of the days of Jeremiah that even the priesthood was corrupt. But it was, why did God have this story in the Bible? Hear about the Rechabites. If you read Jeremiah 35, which I encourage you to do, the whole point of that whole thing was that the priesthood had become so corrupt, the nation had become so corrupt, that Jeremiah is told by God to go find a group of people 
they're Kenites. They're, they're not even Jewish, but yet they, they most likely were descendants that had a priesthood back in their ancestry, and they had this righteous, godly convictions passed down to them. They honored their fathers, and they held on to those godly convictions. And I'm going to show you here in a little bit how God blessed them. But Jeremiah brings them into the temple area, tells them to drink wine, and they say, no, we can't do that. And God spoke to Jeremiah and said, do you see how the Rechabites are so honoring of their fathers to hold to the convictions of their fathers? When their fathers simply said, don't do this and do this, that they've held on to that. And he said, then turn and look at Israel and how they've backslidden from me. I gave them my word. I said, do this, don't do that. But they've backslidden and gone their own way. So it was a rebuke to the nation of Israel. Now let me give you a few things here. The interesting thing about this study, about the wine here is this. The priest who ministered before the Lord in Leviticus 10 verse 9, they could not drink wine when they were going to minister. Now let me tell you a little background behind that story. Everybody knows about Nadab and Abihu and how they offered strange fire and they died. Everybody's read that story. But a lot of people really don't know what they're talking about when they're talking about that story, especially people I've heard that try to use it to come against revivals and things like that, call it strange fire. They don't even know what the story means. But what was actually going on was this. It was inferred in Scripture. After Nadab and Abihu died, that Moses was told by God to tell the priests, look, when you go into ministry, don't be drinking. And I'll tell you why here in a moment. But Nadab and Abihu, what was going on was the tabernacle had been set up. The glory of God settled into it. The priesthood was now in operation. Now there's like this celebration. Everybody's feasting. Everybody's rejoicing. And Nadab and Abihu was drinking wine and probably had just a few too many. And in their zeal and their love for God, I'm sure... Um, the burning of the incense was considered and is considered to be the most holy offering that you could offer up unto the Lord because you would actually go into the holy place right before the ark and burn the incense before him. And so in their zeal and their love for God and their celebration and them probably having one too many, they get out their censers, which would be like a little skillet with a handle and you put a coal in it and they put the incense on that coal and now it's the smoke's coming up and they're probably celebrating before the Lord what are they doing they're trying to go into the Holy of Holies and worship the Lord and burn incense they had just learned about all this from Moses they had learned about Yom Kippur the Day of Atonement all of that and they were trying to go in to the presence of God in an unauthorized way and if God had allowed them to do it, it would have set a precedent that any priest could just simply just go in whenever they felt like it. There was no way God could have allowed this. And so God had no choice but to let some fire come out of the Holy of Holies, that glory fire, jump out and consume them. It killed them. They were buried. And that's anyway, and so let me give you also a New Testament example because I'm talking about the glory. Now you go to Acts chapter 2, 3, 4. 
the Spirit of God fell. It's the birth of the early church. The glory of God is in and among God's people. You have leaders like Peter and others that their shadow is healing the sick. Just incredible things going on. In the midst of God's glory, Ananias and Sapphira come in. God had just birthed something new, just like he did in the days of Aaron. God had just birthed this new covenant. His church was being planted. The Spirit of God was poured out. The glory was in their midst. And in comes Ananias and Sapphira. And they're going to lie to God in the glory. God could not permit it. They dropped dead. People had to drag them out and bury them. So Moses gave a commandment after that happened with Nadab and Abihu and said this, listen, when the priests are going to go in to minister, you make sure that they do not go in there having been drinking wine, okay? How many of you guys know whenever people have been drinking wine, what happens? their inhibitions go down all of a sudden now things that they would have never done before now they're doing and that's most likely what happened with Nadab and Abihu they would have never done that before but having had a few too many they weren't thinking straight when people have been drinking many times they'll say things they would have never said they'll do things they would have never done the inhibitions come down And I believe that's why God spoke that. And I was, when I was, as I was talking to my friend about it, and he was telling me that story about what happened to him. He was telling me about the dangers he's seen of the drinking that's now going on in the church. He said it really concerns him because he said people go home and they start drinking a couple glasses and now all of a sudden their minds aren't as clear. Their inhibitions are coming down. Maybe before they would have never looked at pornography, but now they're looking at it. Their guard would have been up more. How many times we read in the Bible about be sober, be vigilant? But where people begin to lose these, you know, these um, godly convictions that they have, it begins to wane. Why? Because they've had too much to drink. And now they start making stupid decisions and doing things they would have never done. And it was a concern that he had. And I agree with him. Also, the Nazarite had to abstain. Many people don't know about the Nazarite vow, but it's simply like a fast that you can go on for a period of time. You could do it for a week, you could do it for a year. But during a time that anybody could take a vow unto God, this Nazarite vow... They were simply really consecrating themselves. They were dedicating themselves unto God for a period of time, a period of being really consecrated. And there were three main things. They had to let their hair grow as long as they were on the vow. At the end of the vow, they would shave their head and their, their hair would be burned at the bronze altar. They also could not eat or drink of the vineyard. So any grapes, raisins, wine, grape juice, none of that, they couldn't have it. And then number three, they couldn't be, a, be around dead bodies. So, you know, if there were people that 
relatives or whatever that had died, they had to avoid those dead bodies. If they didn't, their vow ended right there. They couldn't be defiled by dead bodies. And in the Old Testament, dead bodies were a very defiling thing. People had to go, they had to immerse in water, they had to go have the waters of the red heifer sprinkled on, they had to be really cleansed from that before they could go back into the temple area. But it's interesting because you look at this, the Nazarite vow, and what it say to avoid the wine. It was a time of deeply consecrating your life. And there were people from even their birth in the Bible that were set apart as a Nazarite. Samson was, but he didn't respect it. Samuel was. John the Baptist was. And it's interesting because Samuel and John the Baptist in particular, both of them lived at a time when they were used mightily by God to help bring incredible transition. Samuel was the last judge, but he also inaugurated the kings and was the one who placed David on the throne of David. He lived at a time of great transition. And, you know, Israel had been so backslid during those period of the judges, and David brought such a revival but Samuel was the one that brought the transition. But he was a man that was a Nazarite. Basically, a Nazarite vow was a form of like partial fasting, but also really consecrating your life unto God. The same thing with John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a man that lived a Nazarite life. So John the Baptist lived partial fasting, but really consecrating his life. And John was used to help bring the transition from the old law, the Old Testament, and see Jesus come on the scene who was going to fulfill everything. I'm telling you that people that really consecrate their lives and live a life of prayer and fasting have been used very mightily by God in history. But people that have a higher calling, that you're, you're a group of people that's going to go into revival, you're a group of people that's going to go into the glory of God, and you're going to help other people come into the glory. The glory is going to be in your home. The glory is going to be in your life. There are certain convictions, godly convictions like the Rechabites, that simply you're not going to be able to do things and get away with things that other people claim they can. I'm not saying that they can, but I'm just saying they claim they can. But God's going to let, not going to let you do it. There's things that other people, maybe for whatever reason, feel comfortable watching. But you feel really convicted and uncomfortable with it. There's things that other people, and they call themselves Christians and all, but they feel very comfortable listening to. Places they feel comfortable going to. People they feel comfortable hanging around. But you don't feel comfortable with it. There's things that they say they feel comfortable putting into their temple. The alcohol, the tobacco, etc. They feel comfortable with this, supposedly. But like my friend, you have a higher calling and you just don't feel comfortable with it. It's not for you. They feel comfortable with maybe marking and cutting up and piercing and doing things to their temple, but you just don't feel comfortable with it. It's between them and God. We're not going to judge them. That's not your place. Be careful with that. You're talking about arrogance. Be careful with that spiritual pride business. That'll destroy people. You're not their judge. And remember, they maybe they haven't had the encounter with God you've had by the grace and mercy of God. 
Okay, nobody's judge here, but I'm just saying that you have a higher calling and you don't feel comfortable with it. And it will really hinder the glory of God. And another thing, on the priest, they you should look up the you know Aaron's garments. And that's another sermon for another day, which actually I will get into before years in. But Aaron's garments had a breastplate on him. The golden ephod had these little shoulder pieces that had chains that came down like this. And attached to the chain was a breastplate called the Hoshan. And that breastplate rested over the heart of the priest. And it had 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel. So it was the priest's responsibility that God's people was always on his heart to pray for them and intercede for them. And every day he would go in in the evening and the morning sacrifice and he would burn incense before the Lord in the holy place and he would pray. And where was God's people? On his heart in intercession. But in those stones, 12 different stones that represented the 12 tribes on the third row down, there was a stone called the amethyst. Amethyst has to do with not drunkenness. Amethyst gets its name from an ancient Greek word, amethustos, which means not intoxicated. You're not going to be able to be somebody that's, in, that's a drunkard, that's having all these alcohol issues and serve the Lord. You're just not going to be able to do it. And people that want to be able to minister and they want to be able to do things for God and it's a door for the enemy. And those of us that that came out of a, a life of sin, we know the dangers of these things. And we're not going back to it. But the Hoshin, that, that breastplate, it even says in that breastplate there with that amethyst, it is saying not drunkenness. You need to be sober-minded. You need to be vigilant. Your discernment needs to be sharp. You need to be really discerning what God's saying. You need to be in tune with the Spirit. And one of the greatest ways to hinder that is to be drinking. All right. And then the next thing, The Rechabites, it says, not living in stone houses. They were not able to build themselves houses that were permanent structures. Let me give you a little bit of background with this. Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abraham, his name was Abram at the time, go forth from your country, from your relatives, your father's house, to the land I will show you. Now we know the story of Abraham that as he left his father's house, his father's house was a place where his inheritance was. His relatives lived there. They had built houses. They have accumulated wealth. No doubt Abraham would have had an incredible inheritance. But God told him to leave all of that. And Abraham had to go from that. And he had to go toward the land of Canaan and him and all of his household dwelled in tents. They lived this nomadic life. Shepherds living off the land. 
But I love, love Hebrews 11 verse 10 says, For Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder was God. Abraham was looking for this, the new Jerusalem one day. But he was following the Lord. How many of you guys know that even though we are in this world, we're not supposed to be of this world? There has to be an understanding that we are just passing through. It concerns me so much that I see so many people now that, that, that are professing Christianity and they go to church, but their life is so worldly. They are so worldly. There's no difference between them and the sinners in the world. You, do, you cannot see a marked difference any longer. They have the same foul mouth and they're doing the same things. But people that are called to come into the glory, the, those godly convictions are going to really begin to be at work in their life. And they're going to become very selective about what they're watching. They're, not going, to, they're going to be careful not to let themselves get into lust by watching something going on that would create lust. You know, they're going to feel very uncomfortable with witchcraft and the occult. You know, it's interesting that witchcraft is probably even more deadly. Now, let me say it this way. You know the way that, that people will put, whether it's uh, PG-13 or R or PG and all that, it's, it's what's looked at? Language, violence, sexual content. Witchcraft is not even considered. But witchcraft is more deadly than even those things. But they'll feel very uncomfortable. You'll feel very uncomfortable with witchcraft. And I do not understand some of these goofy Christian parents that, that let their little kids play Ouija boards and, and get into stuff and play little seances and stuff like that. They have no idea what they're letting in that kid's life. If they had any idea, they wouldn't do it. But you'll feel very uncomfortable with some of the things that, that are out there that, that are watched. It just You can't watch it. You can't listen to it. It's not entertaining to you. Now on the flip side, see I'm talking about Abraham. He was so faithful to leave his father's house even though he probably had so much there. He had such an inheritance there. His accumulated wealth from his father, grandfather, etc. All of it was there. I'm sure he had built himself a house. He had everything there. He had to leave all that. But he was following the Lord. And it was a prophetic picture and type of those of us who would become the children of Abraham, sons of Abraham, that would be in this world but not of it. We're looking for a city whose maker and builder is God. But on the flip side of that, Jewish writing shows us that Esau intermarried with Canaanite women and built a stone house and began to intermingle with the culture of Canaan. So now the next generation, Isaac and Rebekah, they have these twins and Esau, who is supposed to get the birthright, Esau's over here marrying Canaanite women, building stone houses, and beginning to intermingle in the Canaanite culture, and it grieved Isaac and Rebekah. As a matter of fact, Isaac 
told Jacob, you need to leave here and go back to the land of, of our relatives and get a wife from there. Don't marry these Canaanite women here. Esau was a picture and type of somebody that grew up in the things of God but became like the world and began to marry the world, live in the world, and be like the world. And look at what the Bible says about Esau. It says in Malachi 1 verse 2, Wasn't Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. I love Jacob, but Esau I hated. I turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to jackals in the desert. God had strong feelings against Esau because of the way Esau chose to live. And what does James 4, 4 say? James chapter 4 talks about you adulterous people. Talking about the people of God. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity, hatred with God. And those that choose to be a friend of the world become an enemy of God. And people will profess Christianity and they'll go to church on Sunday morning or whatever and worship. But then the previous Friday, Saturday night, what were they doing? They were in bars drinking. They were in clubs partying. It's an abomination. So Isaac, or Abraham versus Esau. Abraham was faithful to be in that area in the world. He was around Canaan. He was there around that culture. But he never got ingratiated in that culture. He lived distinct and separate from among them. Whereas Esau intermarried and became like the Canaanites. And that's one of the messages of the Feast of Tabernacles. Is that, yes, the glory of God tabernacling among us. But the Feast of Tabernacles has to do with living in booths, living in tents, temporary dwellings, that even though we're in this world, we're just traveling through it. How many people in Christianity today are really thinking that way? I want you to think about it for a moment. The Bible's clear about this, that we're pilgrims and we're just passing through. Our lives should be this way, that we are thinking about eternity. With every day that we live, we're realizing, I am not a part of this world. I'm just passing through. This is not my home. I'm not going to let my feet sink down into the soil of this world too much. I'm not going to let myself get roots too much here. I'm not going to let myself get entangled too much with the cares of this world. I am of the Lord's kingdom. I'm just passing through. I'm looking for the coming of my bridegroom. So these godly convictions, I believe, for the Rechabites, go back to their ancestry. I believe that Jethro, a priest, had a lot to do with this. He had some very godly, priestly, righteous convictions that he passed down to his descendants. And this went from parent to child that they were to live set apart unto God. And even though the Rechabites all around them Israel was backslidden. People were sacrificing to demon gods, setting up Asherah poles. They would worship Baal. They would burn incense on their rooftops to Baal. All around them, this was going on. Jeremiah was walking through the land, crying out against it. But even though this was all around them, the Rechabites were there, and they said, they may do it, but we're not doing it. And they were faithful to the Lord. 
They were faithful to their godly convictions. And so this leads me to the third point that I wanted to make with this. Hopefully this is making sense tonight. Listen, people can do whatever they're going to do. At the end of the day, all I can say, it's, all I can say is this. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And there's godly convictions that have been passed down to me. And I have not forsaken my roots. I have other minister friends that I know and I love. And they were in revival with me in the 90s. We were all touched. And we used to minister together. And they're not where they used to be in different areas. And I love them. I don't judge them. But I'm not doing it. In Jeremiah 35, 18, here's the last point I wanted to make with this. Did you notice that the Rechabites were saying this? They were saying, in essence, we're going to honor our father. Our father and our grandfather told us not to do these things. And because of them, we're going to honor them, and we're not going to do it. Even though they, they were free to still have, once their father passed away, they could have done it, but they honored their fathers. And I'm not just talking about here biological fathers with the Rechabites, obviously so, but for us, we have spiritual fathers and mothers in the faith that have gone before us, that have paid a dear price for us to have what we have today and have very godly convictions. And you can look back, going back 100 years, 200 years, and the convictions are pretty much the same across the board. These godly men and women knew that alcohol was a snare. They knew not to get all caught up with the, the worldly stuff that's out there. They knew to live a set-apart life. And they taught their people. I'm talking about go back to, to the days of Wesley. Go back to the days of Finney. Read some of the sermons of those that were revivalist. What were they preaching? They were preaching against sin. They were saying, come out from among them, my people. Be separate. Be holy unto God. Be a righteous people. And I told that story of a modern day parable where those, the fathers had built this big wall on the bank of a river. And their, their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren, they all were dwelling there. And that wall was there. And the, and, uh, the fathers die and the children are wondering, why is that wall there? It's ugly. It has algae growing on it now. It's an eyesore. Why do we still have it there? And without inquiring, they tear it down. And then a great flood comes. And there was no wall there now. And that flood wipes out their village. Wipes out their crops. Wipes out a lot of their livestock. Some of the children drown. It was devastating. But those, the fathers had built a wall that they knew needed to remain there and not be moved. And I'm seeing today some younger people coming up that want to move things that do not need to be moved. And they're going to suffer for it if they don't repent. They really will. Some of them already are. So here's what God said in Jeremiah 35, 18. God spoke to Jeremiah about the Rechabites because they had honored their fathers. Look at what God said. Then Jeremiah said to the house of the Rechabites, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, because you have obeyed the command of Jonadab your father, 
kept all of his commands and done according to all that he commanded you. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rahab, shall not lack a man to stand before me always. Now see, some people read that and say, what does that mean? I was studying this. Here's what a lot of biblical scholars believe that that means. When the Kenites, who were so righteous, remember how corrupt the priesthood was? In Jeremiah's day, things were corrupt. The Rechabites were out here living godly lives. They had to move into Jerusalem to flee from Nebuchadnezzar's armies that were raiding the land. Now they're living in Jerusalem. A lot of biblical scholars believe that this was a reference that the Rechabites were going to start intermarrying into the priesthood. Their daughters would marry priests and they would end up standing before the Lord. Now whether or not that's what happened or not, but to stand before the Lord means to worship Him. It's a reference of being in His presence, worshiping Him. How would you like for God to say to you that I'm putting such a blessing on you that it's going to travel down your family line that you'll never lack somebody that will be able to stand in my presence and worship me? It reminds me of the book of Revelation about the church of Philadelphia. He said, I'll make you a pillar in my house. Man, I, I want to be one of those that God allows to be in his presence. And that's what that references. To stand before the Lord is to be in his presence. You know, and I think about those that's gone on before us. I think about, for example, in my case, the influence. I know in the natural, having godly Christian parents with godly convictions, thank, thank the Lord. But also in the spiritual realm, though, I think about Brownsville and the impact it had on me and the impact it's had on you, even though you didn't go to it. And I think about how years ago, without any, I had no idea Steve was starting a church. I really didn't. I, I just felt so connected to con, you know, contact his ministry. And I was coming back when it was really young and was a baby and it was still in his house. Brother Steve met with me, spoke into my life, prayed over me, spoke a blessing, released me out to, to do things under his authority. I was doing a lot of street evangelism, and we were doing um, like a cell group of sorts at the time. People were getting saved, etc. coming. And it's a major move of God. It's, it's awesome what God was doing, and you know, whether it been maybe in an apartment or a house later on, and places we were I mean it was basically what you're experiencing here has been going on for a long time it has gotten a little bit more intense here lately but but I remember brother Steve really was in many many respects like the father of what's going on here his fingerprint is felt here to this day he was the one that released me out under his authority to start what became River of Life down the road. He was the one that prayed over me and blessed me, spent time with me. And it was out of that. And so in my mind, I'm thinking to myself, as River of Life grows, even though Brother Steve is, is dead and gone to be with the Lord, that his godly convictions are still my godly convictions. 
And I have friends that have abandoned those godly convictions, and that's their problem. And, you know, I, I pray that as revival comes, they'll come to their senses. But, you know, my wife and I have been in meetings with people that were leaders and some of the foul language and other stuff going on. We, it was just very uncomfortable. And we left there and, and got in a car, and my wife looks like she's wanting to cry. And I'm, and I'm saying, well, they may do it, but we are not doing it. But that's just the state of things right now. But I wanted you to get that ready for me, that CD. And she's going to play something for you, but just get it ready. I said all that because I wanted you to hear Brother Steve give this prophecy. Now, in light of this sermon with the Rechabites and how they had godly, priestly convictions, just like Moses told the priest to don't drink and then go in to minister, the Rechabites were told just not to drink, period. They were living like Abraham was in tents. They were living virtuous. But they were not going to get wrapped up with the world around them, okay? Now, during the Brownsville revival, I think it was 97 or 98, I don't remember exactly, but Steve Hill gave this prophecy. And since he had been, you know, such a father to what's going on here, I wanted you to hear this. Some of you have heard it before, but it's in your notes if you want to read along. But she's going to go ahead and play it and just crank it up where everybody can hear it real good. It can get on the recordings. But I wanted it to be him saying it. If possible, the last few uh, days, here we go. There's been a restlessness in my spirit. I mentioned to Pastor that I feel very unsettled. I feel like the ground underneath me is shifting. I feel as if something is about to change. Now the Lord knows I love change. I thrive on the unknown. I enjoy the uncertainties of life. I'm extremely uncomfortable when everything is cookie-cutter predictable. When the earth begins to shift, when I hear roots being pulled up out of the ground, when I feel the wind on my face blowing in a new direction, I like that. Over the last several days, something has been stirring. I can't stop moving around. There is something on the horizon, something big. I can't touch it yet. I can't gaze upon it with my eyes. But I can feel it. It's there and it's moving closer. My spirit man is speaking loud and clear. He has overridden my carnal nature and is raising his voice. The first time I heard my spirit man was 22 years ago. He told me when I got saved that I was a child of God. My spirit bore witness with God's spirit that I was God's child. Now the spirit of the Lord is telling this child of God that something's up. The Lord would say to everyone in this place, live unsettled. The Lord would say to everyone in this place, live unsettled. Don't sink too deep into the soil of this earth. Keep your head up and your feet moving. Stay alert. Be sober. This morning early, the Lord spoke clearly these two words. I'm coming. The day of my return is at hand. Loose yourself. 
loose yourself of any ties that bind. If you don't loose yourself, I'll help loose you. Prepare the way in your own heart and then help prepare the way in others. I want no obstacles. I will have no obstructions. I will return for a pilgrim people. He said to me, let the church know that the day is approaching. Warn them. Don't wine and dine them. Tell them clearly. Don't mix words. My word, my water is pure. Don't taint it. Make it clear. Let my people know it's about to happen. What is about to occur will change world history. Nothing will remain the same. Let the unbelievers, let the skeptics, let the religious ones know that what they fear the most is about to happen. I'm going to say that again. Nothing will remain the same. Let the unbelievers, let the skeptics, let the religious ones know that what they fear the most is about to happen. Every fear known to man will be swallowed by the terror of the day ahead. Fear will overcome fear. Dread will overcome dread. The violent will be overcome by the more violent. My final work is at hand. My spirit's wooing is about to seize. No one will grieve me anymore. No one will quench my spirit anymore. No one will resist me anymore. Their days are over. Let them know my warm season of grace and mercy will soon turn to a chilling winter of judgment and wrath. The warm days of my wooing will be exchanged for the fiery days of my vengeance. My pleading for the souls of man, the passionate cry of the faithful harvesters, the unselfish service of my holy servants, all their labor, all the charity, all the pain, all the suffering, it will be over. I have heard, says the Lord, the groans of nature. I have heard the midnight cries. My church has been begging my return. My bride has been longing to be with me. The plan of the ages has almost reached fruition. The tree has borne forth its fruit. The fertile soil has yielded the harvest. The planting will stop. The laborers will leave. The sickle will rust. It's almost over. I'm coming back. I will not delay my coming to you, so don't delay your coming to me. Jesus, we hear you. We hear you. That always sticks with me. Keep your head up and your feet moving. Don't let your feet sink too deep down into the soil of this earth. Loose yourself from every tie that binds. The coming of the Lord is at hand. And we are living in a time where the coming of Jesus is drawn very near. And the Bible says in these times, you know, to be sober, be vigilant. It talks about not forsaking, assembling yourselves together as you see the day approaching. These are the times to be faithful to God's house and to really be living obedient to the word. All right, I'm going to go ahead and shut down recordings and... We're going to pray for people tonight. There's just been an awesome anointing here. But just remember, guys, that if you're called to go into the glory, you're not going to be able to get away with things other people get away with. 
God's going to set higher standards. You're going to have stronger convictions. And the Lord's going to hold us to that because we're a people that's going to go into his glory. But I want the glory. I don't want these old things anyway. Amen. All right. Let's go ahead and move chairs and we'll pray for people.